بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الخلق والمرسلين سيدنا وحبيبنا وشفيعنا وقدوتنا وكرة عيننا ونور قلوبنا وسندنا ومولانا محمد صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد all praise belongs to Allah سبحانه وتعالى and the choices of blessings upon our Prophet Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم we thank Allah for his innumerable favors that he has bestowed upon us and specifically this morning we thank him for allowing us to pray our Fajr Salah in Jama'ah and a Salah that is performed in Jama'ah our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told us that the reward for that prayer is 27 times more rewarding and uh, which literally means that if you were to pray Salah once that's one reward and you will pray 27 times it's 27 rewards but over and above the 27 rewards there's something so special in brothers in Islam standing together in prayer that even if you were to do it 27 times separately it still does not equal that one salah that was performed in jama'ah and this is from the blessing and favor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us this morning over and above that we recited the prophetic adhkar the compilation of Imam al-Haddad al-Wirdul Latif and that is a compilation that has adhkar that has been given to us from our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from beginning to end and it's one of the one of the uh, great compilations of prophetic adhkar that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it such that uh, thousands of individuals around the globe, is, if not hundreds of thousands, are reciting them every morning after the Fajr prayer. And uh, that's our advice to our brothers at Ayah that this is the ultimate and best way that you could start your day, praying your Fajr in the masjid and thereafter reading the Wirdul Latif. And if you want, they recite it, Buddha Yusuf recites it every morning here in our masjid. And Surah Yasin thereafter again, a sunnah that was emphasized by our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we've heard many virtues of the recitation of Surah Yasin. We are indeed um, excited this morning because we commence with a reading of a new book, two books for that matter, one on the outer aspects of fiqh and the other with regards to the inner the self-purification of the soul. And it's so important that we appreciate and understand that these two sciences must be dealt with together. One cannot be focusing on outer rituals and outer fiqh to the exclusion of his spiritual self. And one cannot be focused on the spiritual self, the inner self, to the exclusion of knowing what Allah, what is halal and haram and what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala requires of him. Muslims have to become focused on both, both aspects, the inner as well as the outer the inner is developed into a science known as tasawwuf and tasawwuf is one of the most beautiful things under the sun because tasawwuf is something that allows you to develop a special relationship with your creator Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's all about you and Allah and once a person draws close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he finds a comfort therein, he finds a sweetness therein, he finds a, 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 and, 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 a, he finds a, a feeling or an experience that cannot be explained. There's nothing like an individual sitting and feeling close to his Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. Feeling close to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So tasawuf is this beautiful vehicle, this beautiful experience. However, you would, you, you, you would notice that if you were just to browse sometimes on the internet and especially those people who are anti-tasawuf, you find they would often share video clips of of extremism that, 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 that finds itself at times within tasawuf. And that's an outcome of 
unbridled tasawwuf. That's when there's no ilm, knowledge to govern tasawwuf. Then that beautiful thing, that beautiful vehicle actually becomes very ugly. You know, and therefore we've, we, 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 we're, trying to create a, we're trying to create a marriage between the two. Tasawwuf is this beautiful thing, but with this beautiful tasawwuf it must be governed by ilm, by knowledge. And if it is not governed, it has the potential to, to become ugly. So we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us knowledge of the outer, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us knowledge of the inner, that He makes us practical when it comes to the outer aspects of our faith and our iman and our Islam. And we ask Him subhanahu wa ta'ala that He makes us practical when it comes to the removing of ailments and sicknesses from our hearts, the removing of veils from our hearts, and drawing closer to Him subhanahu wa ta'ala, witnessing the manifestations of his names and his qualities in this existence. Amin, Ya Rabbil Alameen. So, the first text that we'll be commencing with is a text known as the Mukhtasar Abi Shuja, which is a, um, one of the classical works in the Shafi'i Madhab. Most students, when they commence on the journey of studying fiqh, fiqh proper, Islamic law, they would commence with the study of the Mukhtasar Abi Shuja, the translation of which here is the ultimate conspectus. And uh, I actually want to encourage brothers to find copies of the Ultimate Conspectors. Our bookstore, Timbuktu Books, is just down the road, and there's not going to be enough copies if everyone in class this morning was to purchase. But uh, try your best to find a copy. If you don't have a, if you if you don't purchase a copy, you could perhaps find one online or through Kindle or whatever the case may be. But it's always nice to be sitting with a text with you that you could uh, that serves as a that serves as a basis for you to fall back on when revising your work, and that is so important. We want to leave here knowing fiqh, we want to leave here knowing our religion better. We want to leave here knowing how I need to spend my 24 hours of my daily life. And this is essential because <coughs> sometimes we don't develop a true appreciation of fiqh, Islamic law, that's what fiqh is, <coughs> al-fiqh al-islami. And we, we know that our Prophet Muhammad <coughs> he was the final Prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was Khatamun Nabiyin. There is no Prophet to come after him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he conveyed to us the law from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala that became known as the Sharia. And the true primary vehicles via which the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala conveyed law to you and I because we are here for a purpose. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala did not create us in vain. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala said, تَبَارَكَ الَّذِي بِيَدِهِ الْمُلْكُ وَهُوَ عَلَىٰ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ الَّذِي خَلَقَ الْمُلْكُ Allah created what's most? Death. وَالْحَيَاتِ Life. Why? خَلَقَ الْمُلْكُ وَالْحَيَاتَ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ Allah said Allah created life and death to test you. So we have to be tested. There is no clear objective behind my creation over the reality and fact that Allah is testing me. So I need to know my life and my death from the day I was born till my last breath is a test. Through the text of the Quran it's a test. To test you. To test you in terms of what? Ayyukum ahsanu amala whom of you are best in action. And by action here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to your implementation of his law. Whom of you are best in implementing this law that he subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the same thing when Allah says, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ I have not created man, nor have I created jinn, except that they worship me. 
some of the ulama, they, they said that this particular verse refers more to the spiritual side and not the outer aspects of it, fiqh. So, the one Allah says he created life and death to test you, whom of you are best in implementing law, out of it. But some of the companions, when they said, when Allah said, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I have not created man or jinn, except that you may worship me. They said, لِيَعْرِفُونَ Except that you may know me. And knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what the scholars refer to as ma'rifa. You know, I saw somebody trying to criticize the concept of ma'rifa. There's a book that was published by our publishing house, the publishing house of Darul Turat al-Islami, called The Spheres of Iman, Islam, Ihsan, and Irfan. You know, so a person, if he takes a very quick observation and he looks at the hadith of Jibreel, Jibreel asked the Prophet wasallam, what is Iman? And he asked the Prophet wasallam, what is Islam? And he asked the Prophet wasallam, what is Ihsan? So this person said, where does Irfan come from? Because that's also part of the title of the book of Habib uh, Abdurrahman bin Abdullah Balfaqi that we published. So he says, where does Irfan come from? And then he produced some article to say that Irfan is a concept that was developed by the Shia. That, that's the problem, we don't know Arabic. Right? Because Irfan comes from the word Ma'rifa. And Ma'rifa is what I think it was Abdullah ibn Abbas said is meant when Allah says, I have not created man in jinn except that they worship me. He said, Yani li'arifun, except that they come to know Allah. And knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a station that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants those people who spend years in purifying the inner selves. Right? That's what they call ma'rifa, a special knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You come to know Allah on a complete different level. You come to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in such a way that you cannot read in an aqidah book. You cannot read it in a book of doctrine or theology. That is ma'rifa, a special knowledge. As meaning there's a special relationship between you and Allah, so you understand and know Allah better than anyone else. That's what ma'rifa is. And that's what Abdullah ibn Abbas said the meaning of the verse, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ means. So we're commencing with the outer aspects of fiqh, and the text I said that we are reading is the text Muhtasar Abi Shuja. Uh, rather, I want to come back to my introduction, and that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with fiqh. Uh, his primary source, our primary source of fiqh is going to be the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is the Quran. And next to the Quran is the words the statements, the actions, and the approvals of the Messenger Muhammad وسلم, which is known as his Sunnah. So our primary source of law, when I want to know what is halal and haram, and if I want to know what I should be doing at every second of my existence, my, the primary sources is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad That is a matter that is agreed upon. Every single scholar that came to earth agreed that the primary source of law is the Quran and Sunnah. And I want to emphasize this because these are, these are, these are further criticism that is somehow launched at people that adopt a particular madhab or a particular school. In that they would say that I'm not a Shafi'i or I'm not a Hanafi or I'm not a Hanbali or I'm not a Maliki. I follow the Quran and Sunnah. You know, which is, which is, which is very contradictory to me. Because if you are claiming that you are following the Qur'an and Sunnah, contrary to the Malikis and the Shafi'is and the Hanbalis and so forth, then what are they following? What was Imam Shafi'i following? And the followers of Imam Shafi'i, what were they following? If you claim that I follow, I don't follow, 
Imam Shafi, I follow the Quran and Sunnah. So the question is, what was Imam Shafi? Then follow me. <laughs> was he not also following Quran and Sunnah? I'd go without saying, every Muslim believer in the kalima la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam acknowledges the fact that the primary source of law is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. However, there was a reality that does everyone have the skill to go to the Quran and Sunnah to find an answer to his question, yes or no? Do you have access to the Quran? Yes. Do you have access to Hadith works? Yes. But when you have a question, what do you do? You go to a, go to a scholar. And that's what Allah said. Allah said, go to the scholars. Who goes directly to the Quran to find an answer to his question? And who goes directly to the Sunnah or the Hadith to find an answer to his question? Right? No one does that today. Because it's just beyond. It's beyond us. For me to go and look for an answer in the Quran and Sunnah whenever I'm faced with one, it's not, my, it's not within my capacity. Most Muslims today, never mind, never mind looking for an answer. They don't understand the Arabic language. They don't understand Hadith. Even Arabs who understand the Quran and understand the Hadith, there's just so many things to keep in mind and to keep into consideration. So we find that even among the companions, radiallahu ta'ala anhum, not everybody went to Quran and Sunnah when they had, a answer, had a question that required an answer. But they went to other companions who were skilled, who were learned, who had the tools of ijtihad and had the ability to extrapolate law from Quran and Sunnah, they went to those Sahaba. So Sahaba, when wanting to discover the law of Allah, they went to other companions that were mujtahidun. They went to the likes of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, and Umar ibn al-Khattab, and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and Abdullah ibn Umar, and Abu Huraira, and Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, wa karram allahu wajha. Right? Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, or rather Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, when he listed the companions that actually had the skill to go to the Quran and Sunnah and deduct, to extrapolate law therefrom, he listed the companions under the number 20. He couldn't go beyond the number 20 when he wanted to list the amount of companions that were actually mujtahidu. Which means, what was the majority of companions doing? They were consulting the more senior companions who knew the Quran and Sunnah better to advise them what is halal and haram. And that's the point I'm trying to, trying to make it. The tabi'een, exactly the same thing. We speak, today we speak about the Salaf al-Salih, our pious predecessors. And you must have all heard the term Salaf before. A Salaf refers to a generation. It was a sacred and blessed generation. It referred to the three generations that came after the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It was the generation of the Prophet ﷺ, which was the generation of the companions It was the generation of the successors, who we know as the Tabi'een. And then it was the generation of the followers of the successors, which is the Taba'u Tabi'een. That, that, that eras, the first three generations became known as the Salaf al-Salih. So they, again, what was the methodology of the Salaf al-Salih? You know, so you hear, you hear it all the time, and I'm taking time out here as an introduction to our fiqh class for us to appreciate and understand this. Understand how fiqh works, how the community works. Because there's, 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 there's certain individuals, the understanding of the situation is blurred. 
it's blurred because if I was to pick up a text today and I read the life of Imam al-Shafi'i, or I read the life of Imam Awza'i, or I read the life of Sufyan ibn Uyayna, or I read the life of Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, or I read the life of some of the great scholars within the time of the first three generation, the time of our pious predecessors, I find that they had this amazing attachment whenever they need an answer, they go to the Quran and Sunnah. Some of them said, I don't ask this one, I don't ask that one. I find my answers within the Quran and Sunnah, which was beautiful. And we read such amazing stories, right? But the problem is, whose stories am I reading? Whose biographies am I reading? I'm reading the biographies of great ulama, of great scholars. And it would be unfair for me to read the biographies of the great scholars in the era of the pious predecessors and they often imagine that this was the state of every person that lived in that time. Does anyone follow my discussion? Right? It's like we read a biography of the people of Cape Town. So I pick up Mulna Taqaran's biography and I pick up, who else can I use an example? I read Sheikh Muhammad Amin Fakir's biography. And I read Sheikh Saleh Abadi, and I read Sheikh Siraj, and Sheikh Ibrahim Wurz, and so forth. I read the senior ulama of knowledge that is known for their fiqh. I read their biographies, and then I hear how the interaction and knowledge of the Quran and Sunnah was, and then I take the, draw a deduction that the Muslims of Cape Town were all great ulama. Is that true? It's not true. That can't be true. Because you can't read the biographies of a select few and imagine that everyone was doing the same thing. So that's what's happening. People are reading the biographies of the mujtahidun among the Salaf al the pious predecessors, and they're saying that their methodology was that they went to the Quran and Sunnah and they did not ask anyone. Do you understand that? But is it true? Is it a proper reflection? The mujtahidun among the pious predecessors, the most famous of them were four, the most outstanding. Who was the four? Al-Imam Malik, rahimahullah. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, Al-Imam Al-Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. They were not the only four. There were many other mujtahidun, and they had their own madhabs. A mujtahid is a person that develops such a knowledge of Islamic legal theory or usulul fiqh, that is actually able to deal and take law directly from Quran and Sunnah. Usulul fiqh is the, is the key over here. And it wasn't everyone, so we mentioned four. Over and above them, I mentioned some names previously, Sufyan ibn Uyayna, and I mentioned the Imam al-Uza'i, and there was Sufyan al-Thawri, and there was individuals such as Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, and eventually after Imam al-Shafi'i, there were individuals such as Muhammad ibn Jarir al-Tabari, and Muhammad ibn Nasr al-Marwazi, and uh, so forth and so on. So the amount of scholars that had that ability to go to Quran and Sunnah, they were many. But when I say many, how much did I list so far? I listed about eight names. If I was to exert my mind a bit more, I might come up with 15 or 20 names. Then that's the 20 names that I might know. Then if I was to assume how many more could there have been, it's very easy. I could look at Al-Imam al-Dhahabi Siyar Alam Nubala. We list the name of all the great ulama in that era. So I'm going to be generous. Make it. Make it 100. Or even more generous. Make it 200 or 500. Or let's assume that the great ulama that were able to go directly to the Quran and Sunnah was 1,000. 
How many Muslims were they living in that time? How many Muslims? We're speaking about hundreds and thousands of hundreds of thousands of Muslims. And we can't even list the name of 20 scholars that went directly to the Quran and Sunnah to find their answers. So what was the other <coughs> masses doing? How did they find direction in their lives? How did they come to determine what is halal and what is haram? They went to those scholars. And therefore those scholars had madhaib. And I'm taking, I don't know whether you're going to consider wasting time or not, but I'm taking some time to explain how the, the three pious generations after the Messenger Muhammad وسلم, for us to know what the reality was. The reality was that among the companions, there were those who were great scholars, able to go directly to Quran and Sunnah. The others followed them. Among the Tabi'in and the Taba'u Tabi'in and the Taba'u Atba, there were certain scholars that had that ability and the rest followed. And that's exactly where we find ourselves. We find ourselves, Al-Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala, and uh, the assumption is that most, if not all of us, are followers of the Shafi'i school. Al-Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala is one of the greatest minds this world has seen. His ability to, his ability to, to, to solve complicated problems within Islamic law was remarkable. He, he rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that, he said, when problems present, present themselves to me, I unravel it completely to its core with deep investigation, bin nadar. It's like, um, I like using the example, this was a, a friend of mine, he fixes printers. You know those big Kyocera type of printers? Uh, and then, and photocopiers. So he said that the training he went was, I don't know, somewhere in the east. And what the training entailed was that they had to take machines apart to the last crew. So just imagine how many parts, how many small parts you're looking at over here. To the last crew, they take the entire printer apart, and then they must reassemble it all together. Now, for me, that's what Imam Shafi rahimahullah ta'ala is saying. A problem presents itself to me, I strip it right to the core, and I investigate it when I'm looking for that answer. And then he said that, وَلَسْتُ بِإِمَّعَةٍ فِي الرِّجَالِ أُسَائِلُ هَذَا وَذَامَ الْخَبَرِ He said, I'm not an imma'ah. I'm not someone that has to go around to the scholars finding answers to questions. أُسَائِلُ هَذَا وَذَامَ الْخَبَرِ But he's someone that Allah granted the ability to do so himself. He was a, an amazing individual. His night was spent in three. What was the three things Imam Shafi did at night? He? Consulted with the people of his area? Not, not quite? Eh? One third he left for? Ibadah. That was the last third. One third he used to rest. And the other third? Fiqh. He used to pass fatawa. Write out fatawa. That's what his nights were like. Therefore, Imam Shafi, rahimahullah ta'ala, one, 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 one poem that attributed to him, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mercy upon him, he said that, uh, he said that, uh, how does it start? Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ashabi wa barik wa sallim. But eventually he, he speaks about himself. And he says that, uh, he says, Sahari, 
لتنكيح العلوم الذلي من وصل غانية وطيب عناق My being awake at night لتنكيح العلوم to refine the sacred sciences to refine fiqh and islamic law الذلي I find more joy and pleasure in that من وصل غانية وطيب عناق He's speaking about two things He's speaking about girls that are singing singing girls and he's speaking about perfume of nicks and the whole thing is just a a, 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 a figurative form of speaking of sexual relations <coughs> so he's saying for me to stay at night and sit with my books as more beloved to me than sexual relations that's what he's saying and then he says that وَأَلَذُّ مِنْ نَقْرِ الْفَتَاةِ لِدُفِّهَا نَقْرِي لِأَلْكِ الرَّمْلَ عَنْ أَوْرَاقِ He says, what, what I find more, he says, more sweeter to me than a young girl that is playing her duf. So today, the, the, the idea of a duf or a drum is not that widespread within our communities. So girls are attached to what these days? I don't know, dolls, whatever the case may be. But I'm thinking of Mullah Salim's nephew now, young Khalid. He loves his doof. They just find enjoyment playing a drum like you and I cannot imagine. So Imam Shafi said that more sweeter to me than what a girl, young girl finds in playing her doof is the sweetness I find in wiping of the dust of the pages of my books. <laughs> and then he said that وَتَمَايُلِي when, you, when you're sitting with a difficult, thick question in front of you, and you have to find the answer to that question, sometimes it can be very challenging. For us today, in today's world, it means that I need to consult books. So I need to check the Mughal al-Muhtaj, and if the answer is not there, I have to move over to the Tuhfa, and if the answer is not there, I have to go to Bujayram, is Hashia, and if it's not there, I need to look at the Hashia of Jamal, and if it's not there, I need to consult one Hashia after another, and one Sharah after the other. And eventually, when you find the answer in one of those books, that is like the, uh, a, a scholar of today. I'm trying, I'm trying to take the words of Imam Shafi and apply it to my own life. When you find the answer, so Imam Shafi said, when I find that answer, he said, Tamayuli, my swaying from right to left. Out of the joy that I experience when I find the answer to a question. He says, Ashha is more beloved to me than what an alcoholic finds in his drink. Right? And then he said that, He says, I spend my nights awake, awake with books, awake with studying, awake with reading, awake with writing, وَتَبِيتُهُ and you spend your night, نَوْمًا sleeping. بَعْدَ ذَاكَ لِحَاكِ And after all of that, you want to be the same like me. And that's so applicable to this discussion I'm having. Because that person who claims he is not in need of a scholar, be it Imam Shafi or someone else, and that he has access to a Quran and a Sunnah and Hadith, and he doesn't need the ulama and the scholars, that's exactly that. Imam Shafi is saying to them that I spend my nights awake, reading, researching, writing, finding answers to questions and passing fatawa and refining the Islamic sciences. And then he said, وَتَبِيتُهُ You spending your nights. What are you doing? Sleeping. And then many a times in the day, you're standing in your shop. 
or you're going to your business, or you're doing whatever else you're doing. And then he says, and after all of that, you expect to be like me. <laughs> Does that make sense? Right, so that was Imam Shafi. And Imam Shafi had his students. And the students of Imam Shafi, they preserved the views of Imam Shafi. And those views eventually, they developed. It was refined. It was criticized. The beautiful thing of a mother, be it the Shafi or the Hanafi or the Maliki school, is that it's not just the opinions of one mind, of Imam Shafi alone. Because his students took his views, and if I, for the lack of a better term, they put it to the test. And students thereafter, and the generation thereafter. So it's the, it's the, it's a communal, a, 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 a mother is not just that of one imam any longer. It's the contributions of hundreds and thousands of great scholars and great minds and great individuals that is contributing to this particular thought over the passing of centuries. Over the passing of centuries. Until eventually you find that in the fifth century, a scholar by the name of Qadi Abu Shuja, and that's the author of the book that we are reading. Eventually, in the in the year 433, I think it was, Qadi Abu Shuja. Qadi means judge, and his name was Abu Shuja. Was born, and he was most probably born in Basra, where he studied and taught for many years. And there's a there's a bit of confusion around the biography of, of this great Imam, and that is so remarkable. His text is being taught around the world. There is no Shafi'i institute in the world today that does not study the Mukhtasar Abi Shuja or the ultimate conspectus. It's a book that has been studied in all institutes for the past few generations. But we don't know much about the author. We don't know much about his life. Normally, normally, the way fiqh works is that the crystallization, the crystallization of the Shafi'i school took place in the 6th or 7th century at the hands of uh, Abu Qasim al-Rafi and an Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala. And then a few centuries thereafter, Hafiz ibn Hajr al-Hiddami and Shamsuddin al-Ramli. Books that were authored prior to their time normally doesn't get studied that much. Because it's prior to refinement, it's prior to crystallization, except Abu Shuja's book. It's the only text prior Imam Nawawi that is so widespread and so widely taught. So I've been thinking about this, right? Why is it? Because at the end of the day, what text gets taught where? It comes from who? It comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's all about acceptance from Allah. You with me? So how come is it that Abu Shuja's book has become the textbook of a fifth class that is conducted today in the furthest southern point of Africa, in the Medina of Cape Town, in the area of Athlone, in the Masjid of Gallandale, Masjid al-Rahman. What, what was it that caused Allah to accept this book so much? You know how many books have been authored like this? probably better than this. Nicer in terms of its style, in terms of its Arabic, in terms of its representation of fiqh. I, I won't exaggerate if I tell you thousands of books like this, better than this was authored. But how come has Allah accepted this specific one? And Allah, Allah knows best, but 
He was a qadi, he was a judge, he was a great alim, but he eventually settled in Medina al Munawwara. And despite his high qualifications, the latter part of his life was dedicated to giving light, burning light in the mornings for the masjid of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa And if you're asking me how, why is it, or how is it Allah accepted his work so then, for me the answer lies there. He became a khadim, a servant of a masjid. Not any masjid, the masjid of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which makes him a khadim of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And perhaps that was the reason why Allah accepted his book so much. Um, fiqh is holistic. Fiqh is comprehensive. Um, fiqh covers every aspect of our lives. And this is something from the outset that you and I must appreciate. We must appreciate the fact that there's nothing in my life where I have to imagine what I need to do. Whether it's, my, whether it's business, whether it's investments, whether it's banking, whether it's client relationship, whether it's employee-employer relationship, there is nothing under the sun except that Allah's law is there to govern it. It's comprehensive. When a group of Jews came to Salman al-Farisi, they mocked at him. So they said to him that, we have come to learn that your prophet taught you how to use the toilet. You are a grown-up man. Salman al-Farisi was one of those individuals that lived a very long life. So he was, a, he was about a hundred years old when he accepted Islam. And now they're telling him that you are so old, but your prophet had to teach you how to use the toilet. They're ridiculing him. But to Salman al-Farisi, it, it was a point of pride. It's something he felt proud about. That my religion is so comprehensive that it even tells me how to use the toilet. So he said, yes. The Prophet sallallahu taught us that you should enter the toilet with the left foot and you should leave with the right foot. And he told us that one should sit down while urinating. And he taught us to use water or stones. And in the uh, absence of stones today, we use toilet paper. So he taught us how to relieve ourselves, how to clean ourselves. He taught us how to leave the lavatory and he taught us what to ask to recite. It wasn't something for Salman al-Farisi to be ashamed of. It tells you that my religion is one that leaves nothing to my imagination. It tells me what to do in every turn of my life. So to develop a better appreciation for that as part of our introduction this evening, it's important that we appreciate and understand that fiqh has various branches. <coughs> fiqh has various branches. So what would be the first branch of fiqh? We're looking at approximately seven. So the first would be what? Cleanliness. Sorry? Cleanliness. Salim says cleanliness. That's tahara. But tahara is a, not a broader category, it's a subcategory. <laughs> so the ibadat. One branch of law is what we call rituals, ibadat. Ibadat is going to be cleanliness, tahara. It's going to be salah. It's going to be zakah. It's going to be hajj. And it's going to be fasting in the month of Ramadan. Everyone sees that. That's one branch of law. The problem we have is that most people imagine that that's, that's it. People's understanding of Islam is what I mentioned now, rituals. The understanding is cleanliness, salah, 
Zakah, fasting, Hajj. I'm a Muslim. But only one branch. Six branches to go. So what are the other six branches? Hey, Bay'ah. Siti Abdullah says Bay. Bay means business. The term that they would use is Mu'amala. So business law. A very, very important branch of Islamic law that people are neglecting. <coughs> people have become Muslim when it comes to rituals, acts of worship. But beyond that, what do we know about Islam? So Mu'amala is one of the most important chapters of fiqh that need to be studied in this day and age. Because people are doing what? People, our lives are structured around business law because we have, everyone has a bank account. Everyone is doing withdrawals. Everyone is making deposits. What, is the nature, what am I doing when I make a deposit at the bank? What am I doing when I'm making a withdrawal? When I leave money with the bank, what is the nature of the contact between me and the bank? It's a contract taking place, and therefore I need to ensure whether Allah's law is being implemented. If, I'm, if I have Islamic finance, by your example, and I'm banking with FNB or EPSA, I would know better. Uh, I am essentially investing with the bank. So I'm, I'm giving monies to the bank, and the bank will be using my monies to do what? To purchase vehicles and then sell it to someone else. Right? And whenever I require the money, I'll be cancelling the contract uh, in proportion to the amount of money that I'm withdrawing. So essentially, the nature of the contract is what we call a mudaraba contract. But if I go to a conventional bank, or the conventional side of EPSO or any other bank, and I deposit monies at the bank, what am I doing? The nature of the contract over there, it's a loan. I'm lending money to the bank. And therefore, if I take anything more than the principal amount that I loan to the bank, it's called what? Interest. So, do we know the nature of our contracts? That's just a banking account. What about our investments, our finance, our insurance, our medical insurance, our policies, right? Our funds. That's one aspect. All under business law. Then there's the gardener that comes to my home. What's my relationship with that gardener? Then it's, I'm going to the doctor. What's the relationship between me and the doctor? It's all business law. And it's a branch of law that I feel, and Allah knows best, we have neglected long enough. And the challenge of our time is to start educating the masses with regards to business law. But that's only the second branch of deen. So what is the third branch? Hey? But I want to come to something before I come to Jinaya. Sorry? Personal law. You could call it personal, you can call it family. The most common used term today is going to be MPL. What does MPL stand for? Muslim personal law. That's a third branch. What does Muslim personal law deal with? Once upon a time it was just called Mu'asharat. It's about marriages. It's how I enter into a marriage. It's about the proposal. It's about how do I actually go about getting married. What is the rules regarding an individual dealing with a female member of the opposite sex? What discussions could I have with her? What could I not? How much of her can I see? What can I not see? When I intend marrying her, how much can I see again? What can I not see? How does the proposal happen? It's all stated. How does the marriage contract take place? 
life after marriage, what are the rights of the husband, what are the rights of the wife. It's going to be speaking about if problems occur, how do you solve those problems? The idea of tahkim, arbitration. And then eventually, the, the solution of marriage is how does marriages eventually dissolve? So you speak about talaq, and you speak about fasqh, and it's, which is annulment of a marriage and divorce. Then you have something what they call khulu' and they have tafweed and they have various other li'an, other methods of marriages being dissolved. That's all under Muslim personal law. But over and above that, it speaks about nafaqa, maintenance, topics that must be addressed. Maintenance of a man to his spouse, to his wife. Maintenance of children. Maintenance of sisters. Maintenance of parents. Sometimes we speak about nafaqa, we don't actually realize how far and widespread nafaqa is. And my imagination is that nafaqa is just between me and my wife. But there's law over there. And the question is, why are we not reading that law? Why are we not studying that law? Why are we only focused on salah and zakat, which is important, but like salah and zakat is law, the nafaqa and maintenance of our families is also law. So that's the third branch. Can we revise quickly? The first was ritual law. Second was business law. Third was Muslim personal law. So that's three. And we still have four to go. So what is the fourth? So I see, uh, I see, see Raj closing his eyes and thinking. If you're thinking, it means you must have known it once upon a time, see Raj. I'm sorry, it doesn't look like we're going to get into the actual text. But what are the other branches of law? Muna Salim. The one is going to be Qadha. Uh, the court system, how courts work. And every Muslim community must have courts. So what is the duties and the roles of the Qadi? How does a Qadi go about passing judgment between people who are having a debate? Uh, when a Qadi needs to annul a marriage, when can he annul the marriage? When can he, in other words, when can he grant a fasqa and when can he not? But these all have to go to a court. Therefore, if you find a scholar that is just giving a fast to a lady, right, right, left, left, right, and what's the right, left, and center, then it's problematic because this is the function of a court. In the absence of a court, the only body that operates as a court within our community is the Muslim Judicial Council. Therefore, it's not just the Muslim Council, it's judicial, ju judicial. Majlis al-Qadha al-Islami. So once a week they have a Sharia court. And uh, alhamdulillah, I, 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 I'm, I'm uh, fortunate to be part of the, 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 the new changes that will be happening within the Sharia court at the MGC. You know? So the idea is to govern marriages and debates that take place between couples, especially on issues such as whether a lady is divorced or not, whether a fasq has taken place or not, you know, to ensure that proper figures applied over there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make that easy for all of us. So that's the, the, the court within our particular community. But the court has to be there, and that's the fourth branch of fiqh. So what would the fifth be? I'm going to jump over to the one Mona Salim mentioned, which is criminal law. How do you deal with criminals? When are they punished? When are they not punished? So in a country such as ours, the scope of, 
of executing this particular branch of fiqh is very difficult. Right? Because we we are living in a situation where we have two law systems operating at the same time. Right? Munatar uh, Karan, our teacher, he, 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 he coined a beautiful term for it. He called it, uh, we are living in a dual legal system. Because we have the legal system of South Africa, but at the same time we are Muslim, so we have the legal system of Islam also running, operating at the same time. And most of the time, the legal system of South Africa allows us to implement the legal system of Islam completely. But there are times when there are clashes, and this is one area. I don't have the right just to go and implement criminal law and hudud punishments, live out to, to, to whoever I want. Right? There are certain parameters. So, criminal law is about how criminals are punished, how they should be treated. Uh, not just in terms of punishment, also in terms of how they should be treated. They are still human beings. Right? Uh, it speaks about the, 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 the famous mandatory punishments that you and I would be familiar with is cutting of hands and having people killed. When can that happen? Is it just as simple as that? Or is there conditions and formalities and protocol that needs to be fulfilled before you actually do that? Right? So that's all studied under jinayat to criminal law. And that leaves us with five, which means there's two left. So what are the other two? There's something that is called uh, a siyasa ashariya. Right? <coughs> so siyasa ashariya is what we would call government-made law. Siyasa ashariya is government-made law. And what triggered my mind over there is Uncle Yusuf's word social, because government-made law is all about the benefit of a society. And it's important for us to appreciate this again. So, something like speed limits on the road. What has it got to do with the Sharia? Did Islam ignore the idea of having speed limits on the road? No, it didn't. It was included under the broader chapter of fiqh known as As-Siyasa As-Sharia. I forget the English translation for that now. But that basically tells you what law government can make and what law government cannot make within its country. So when government wants to put a quota on the amount of crayfish when a Salim takes out of the ocean, can government do that, yes or no? And if government catches him taking out more, can government punish him, yes or no? All that is discussed under this branch of fiqh known as As-Siyasa, As-Shari'iyya, which speaks about government laws government is able to make within his country. There are rules over there that are going to be serve as guidelines and the rules that government needs to follow in implementing these laws. And the last, the last chapter of fiqh that we barely ever touch on is what is known as siyar. And what siyar refers to is foreign policies, policies between one country and the other. So I'm not going to get into detail there, but what I want you to do is sit down by yourself and appreciate how comprehensive our law is. And remove the idea that law is just about Salah and zakah. It's much more broader than that. It covers every aspect of our lives. So the Fajr Adhan was at 6 o'clock, which means that the time for Salah al Rock has entered. Um, that's an introduction topic. When we meet next week, we will start immediately with the reading of Kitab al-Tahara. So we'll start with the chapter of cleanliness, 
We'll be speaking about water and eventually we will get into hudu and ghusl and so forth and so on. And uh, I want to encourage brothers to try and be as regular as you possibly can. This is, a, this is not just something that is recommended for you and I, but it is an obligation. It's compulsory upon us to study our law, to study fiqh, to know what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. You know, every, every minute that passes by in my day, we need to know what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. So we're going to all try to be consistent. We're all going to try to become better Muslims. And that's all got to do with the outer aspects of law. And then the text that we'll be reading, very quickly, the text that we'll be reading in terms of the inner development of our spiritual selves, is a text that we have over here. It's called The Key to the Inner Secrets and the Coin of Treasures by Sheikh Abu Bakr bin Salim. And if I could just take a minute to speak about its author, so that when I start with this text next week, I don't have to spend time going through his biography again. Shah Abu Bakr bin Salim, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him. He authored this book. It's a short book. And the, the book is one that is going to amaze you. I can promise you that. The ideas that he shares in here, the lessons that he shares in here, uh, it touches your heart. It touches your heart. It might even cause you to cry. And he authored this book when he was 17 years old. And the fact that he was able to author this text, Miftah al-Sarair, the key to the inner secrets, at the age of 17, it speaks about what his spiritual state was already at that age. So, Shaykh Abu Bakr bin Salim comes from a, the Sayyid Ba'alawi prophetic family from Yemen. And in a nutshell, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's offspring, uh, his two grandchildren was Hassan and Hussein, and he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that the lineage of my grandchildren, Hassan and Hussein, comes through me and not through their father. And Hussein radiallahu ta'ala an, his only child that he has was, was uh, al-imam Ali Zainul Abidin. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him. And Ali Zainul Abidin had a son by the name of Muhammad al-Baqir. Muhammad al-Baqir had a son by the name of Ja'far al-Sadiq. And the scholar, great scholar and saint Ja'far al-Sadiq had a son by the name of Ali al-Uraydi. And Ali al-Uraydi had a son by the name of Muhammad al-Naqib, he was known. And he had a son by the name of Isa. And Isa had a son by the name of Ahmad. And this Ahmad, he was known as Al-Imam Ahmad al-Muhajir because he left Baghdad traveled through Makkah and Medina, and eventually he settled in Hadramaut. He settled in Hadramaut because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a vision that from him he will, he will have pious offspring. And then when Imam Ahmad knew that he has pious offspring within his loins, he traveled from Baghdad because it was a place of fitna. There was fighting going on there, and we don't want to get into the history right now, and eventually he settled in a place called Husayhisa in Hadramaut, which is about 20 minutes away from the city of Tarim. Tarim being the city where his progeny eventually settled and made their home. And he had a son by the name of Ubaidullah, and Ubaidullah had a son by the name of Alawi. And the children of Alawi became known as Banu Alawi, or as per the Yemeni dialect, they became known as the Ba'alawi. <coughs> and the plural would be Ba'alawiyya. The children of Alawi, son of Ubaidullah, son of Ahmad, ila Rasulillahi, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
the greatest scholar and personality within this family was a scholar by the name of Al-Faqih Al-Muqaddam Muhammad bin Alawi Muhammad bin Ali Ba Alawi and many of us might have heard that name before because one of the famous dhikrs that we recite here in the Cape is known as the Ratibul Haddad or most of us might know it as the Khadat and at the end of the Khadat when we recite the Fatihas the very first Fatiha or the second Fatiha that we recite we say Al-Fatiha ila ruhi Sayyidina Al-Faqih Al-Muqaddam Muhammad bin Ali Ba Alawi and then we say wa usulihi wa furu'ihi anna Allah yu'ali darajatihi fil jannah wa yukfir min mathubatihi wa yudha'if hasanatihi ila akhiri and then we recite Surah Fatiha so the name is something that we are familiar with it's a family that had a major major impact on this community of ours after Faqih Al-Muqaddam one of the outstanding personalities in this family was a scholar by the name of Sheikh Abdurrahman Al-Saqqaf Rahimahullah Ta'ala Sheikh Abdurrahman Al-Saqqaf he received the title Al-Saqqaf and the word Saqqaf comes from the word Saqqaf which is a ceiling and he was called Al-Saqqaf because he was known to be a ceiling over all the pious and awliya and salihin in his time and Sheikh Abdurrahman Al-Saqqaf he had a few sons his eldest son was a scholar by the name of Abu Bakr Al-Sakran and the other one was Umar Al-Mihdar and both of them were great awliya in their time were great scholars there's amazing stories to be said about Abu Bakr Al-Sakran similarly there's amazing things to be said about Imam Umar Al-Mihdar but that's not what I want to come to Abu Bakr Al-Sakran eventually he had a child and his son's name was Abdullah and he became known as the great Imam Abdullah Al-Aydarus Al-Akbar Imam Al-Aydarus for those of you who heard about him before Al-Aydarus is the word Al-Aydarus comes from the word Aytarus which means a lion and the idea of Imam Al-Aydarus was that he received the title the king because like the lion is the king of the jungle Imam Al-Aydarus was the king of Awliya he was another amazing personality you know Imam Al-Aydarus you know when they speak about the Salihin they speak about Aqtab poles right and then you get the ultimate pole which is the Qutbul Aqtab and the remarkable thing about him was that he his father Abu Bakr al-Sakran was the Qutb of his time no not about her let's say it about his wife Abu Bakr al-Sakran's brother Umar Mihdar had a daughter her name was Aisha and Imam al-Aydaruz got married to Aisha and about his wife Aisha they said that her father Umar Mihdar was the Qutb of his time and she got married to Imam Al-Aydarus who was the Qutb of his time and she gave birth to Imam Abu Bakr Al-Adani Al-Aydarus her son who was the Qutb of his time she was the only lady in history whose father was a Qutb, her husband was a Qutb and her son was the Qutb but the point I'm coming to is Shaykh Abu Bakr bin Salim Al-Imam come back now Shaykh Abdurrahman Al-Saqqaf had two sons who are great awliya Abu Bakr Sakran Umar Mihdar he had another younger son by the name of Abdullah the younger son Abdullah he was not as in terms of his closeness to Allah and in terms of his spirituality and in terms of his wilaya he was not like his two elder brothers Abu Bakr Sakran and Umar Mihdar and he had this in his heart he wanted to go and speak to his father to tell his father how is it and why is it that my brothers have reached such high ranks of spirituality but not me and before he could speak to his father 
His father called him. And his father said, I can see that something is bothering you. And I want you to know that you might not reach such spiritual ranks of your elder brothers, Abu Bakr al-Sakran and Umar Mihdar, but from your progeny, men will come who will reach their ranks. And he was Abdullah, his son's name was Abdurrahman, and his grandson Abdullah, and his great-grandson Salim, and his great-great-grandson was Shah Abu Bakr bin Salim. So that was a, that was, that based testimony to the statement of his father who said, from your offspring such men would come. And Abu Bakr, Abu Shah Abu Bakr bin Salim is from the offspring. Another individual that comes from the offspring of that son Abdullah is who? Our teacher, Sayyid Alam al-Habib Umar bin Muhammad bin Salim bin Habib. Shah Abu Bakr says, Habib Umar is a, from the offspring of Shaykh Abu Bakr bin Salim, the author of this text that we wish to read. So, he is someone that is speaking of experience, he is speaking about someone that is loving what he is writing, he is only 17 years at the, at the time. May Allah allow us to benefit. May Allah allow us through the reading and the study of the sticks that we are able to overcome challenges within our lives, difficulties within our lives, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us steadfastness in being obedient to Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to remove ailments from our hearts. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us to become from the pious, from the salihin. May Allah make our families from the pious and the salihin, our brothers from the pious and the salihin, our children from the pious and the salihin. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to witness change in our community within our life. May we see our community changing from the current state that they are in, and there's a lot of khair and good in our community, but we want to see better. We want to see more causes, we want to see more classes, we want to see masajid becoming full for the fajr prayer, we want to see more people starting to pray the tahajjud salah, we want to see more people reciting Quran and more hufad and more scholars. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to see all of this within our lives. So this morning served primarily as an introduction, I feel uh, an important introduction, and tomorrow we get into the actual, tomorrow, Sunday inshallah we get into the actual text. Uh, my experience with our community and classes that take place after Fajr is that uh, people are eager in the initial period and after a while you become the, the blanket. As weeks pass by, the blanket becomes more heavy. <laughs> but we must be determined because we want the outer and the inner. And the outer and the inner is, is presented on Sunday morning. May Allah accept. Amen. Try to encourage your families and your friends to be part of the program, inshallah ta'ala. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.